I want to have you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and as you're finding Matthew 7, let's go to the Lord in prayer together once again. Our Father, it's been our joy to continue to bow before you and to pray in various veins and modes and to think about confession and adoration, supplication, prayers for illumination. Lord, how precious it is to communicate with you and and even more precious it is to communicate with you as God's people gathered together as you ordained for us to do the way you designed us to be father and lord this morning we ask you as we prayed a moment ago to illumine your word to our minds most importantly lord that what we learn with our minds would be obeyed in our hearts with the things that we think the things that we say and the things that we do we long and yearn for obedience for christ likeness May we as a church grow in sanctification this day. May we become more like our Savior, being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And it's in our Savior's name that we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to continue our series on authentic Christianity, but we're going to step outside of Matthew 5, where we have been. We're going to sort of take a little bit of a detour, but still in the same topic We had a difficult Sunday as a church family two weeks ago as the elders made the painful but necessary decision to exercise church discipline with two of our members. For many of you, that was your first experience. For us as the leaders of the church, it's an all-too-frequent occurrence, and yet it's one that's clearly commanded by the Lord of the church, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, And clearly it seems that the Lord is moving and and stirring the waters, as it were, in our area. In the past two weeks, three churches in Bakersfield have been faithful to exercise church discipline. That there has been a cleansing and a purifying of the body, all with the hope, of course, of eventual restoration if future repentance occurs. Before the decades preceding the Civil War, the Southern Baptist Church which kept very detailed records, they showed that 2% of all the members of the Southern Baptist Church in America were disfellowshipped every year. And you would say, well, that means the church is going to shrink. Actually, what happened was one of the greatest revivals in history when we saw churches filled with new converts because the church was purified. And so actually, we saw the members of Christ's church swelling The Reformed Belgic Confession of 1561 says this, The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, and if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God. When the church family goes through this hard moment of obedience, it causes reflection, it causes deep thinking. To my knowledge, just about every family in our church with children at home had to have long, very weighty, very deep conversations with their children about the the seriousness of sin, the consequences of sin, the, the seriousness of what it means to follow Christ, to say that I am loyal to Christ. What does that actually mean? 
Two weeks ago, I preached a warning to the church as is commanded of me in Colossians 1.28 that we are teaching everyone and warning everyone. But my own heart continues to be burdened to not just let this moment pass and and just act as if nothing has happened. I, I feel the need for us to have a little bit more shepherding together, shepherding of our own souls. Because this is the type of event that causes sobriety. And it certainly tests your faith. It tests whether you actually believe Jesus when he said, if you love me, obey my commandments. And when the church is actually trying to obey Christ's commands, rather than succumbing to what some have called a member-driven consumer philosophy that American evangelicalism is so very good at, so very good at playing church, that when the church acts like the church is supposed to act, it makes everyone in the church test their faith. Do I actually believe Jesus when he said, if you love me, obey my commands? Do I actually believe that? Or is there a little asterisk next to it that has exceptions? The warnings must be blunt. They must be fearful in a way because the potentially false believer in the church is self-deceived in every way. But over time, given the opportunity, the fruit begins to show. The Apostle John said it very clearly that they went out from us because they were not of us. I've been told at times that I'm a bit blunt when I preach. I, I, first of all, take that as a compliment. And secondly, nobody will out-blunt Jesus Christ himself. He's the most blunt. He's the most direct of all. He promises eternal destruction to any who would play Christian. Look with me at Matthew 7, 21. Matthew 7, 21. This is as direct as it, as it gets. The Lord Jesus Christ, fully claiming and rightfully so to be the judge at the end of time, he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I said it a couple of weeks ago, and I'll repeat myself. This whole event has caused a lot of reflection in my own heart as well, and I suppose I'm intensely aware of Jesus' promise that there would be tares among the wheat, that there would be weeds among the the real believers. And And that's a good thing to a certain degree because I have before me an evangelism opportunity every single week. The Apostle Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word. And then shortly thereafter, he said, do the work of an evangelist. And and, and I saw it posted on on, uh, social media this week. Somebody who doesn't know the rest of 2 Timothy 4 apparently said that the job of the preacher is not to evangelize, it's to preach the word. I was like, I don't know how to take those apart. No, the job of the preacher is to preach the word and to do the work of an evangelist. And this weighs on me. I I feel driven to continue warning at every opportunity because the consequences of self-deception are literally eternal. They're eternal. And there may be one or two or five or ten of you that by the time we get done this morning, you're going to be angry. 
You may be irritated. You may be frustrated. You may have feelings of pride swelling up in you. You're the ones I'm most concerned about. And if I could say this in all love, I don't care about your feelings. I care about your eternal destiny. Get mad at me all the way to heaven. That's terrific. And so this morning, since this fits exactly with the theme of authentic Christianity and each of the messages in this series, I've been outlining things that authentic Christians, a genuinely regenerate believer in Christ, that things that we do. And this morning, I'd like to ask, talk to you about the fact that authentic Christians ask the most important question. Authentic Christians ask the most important question. The disciples ask the most important question of their lives at the Last Supper with Jesus. Mark 14, 18 and 19, you don't have to turn there, just listen, you're familiar with this. They were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. Here's their question. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. Matthew's gospel records that hypocritically Judas also said, surely not I, Rabbi. The most important question is essentially the same as the disciples' question of Jesus. And the question is found in 2 Corinthians 13. And I want to have you turn with me there. And that's, that's where we'll be this morning. And then we'll kind of launch from there to some other texts. 2 Corinthians 13. The Corinthians, in many cases, had been led astray by false apostles who had slammed the reputation of Paul. And although he didn't want to do this, Paul was forced. He was cornered into reluctantly defending his apostleship and defending his ministry. But the Corinthians, who had challenged Paul, ironically, he's the one who led so many of them to Christ. They challenged Paul, challenged his legitimacy. Now the tables are turned on them at the end of 2 Corinthians. Instead of arrogantly and, and thoughtlessly challenging the reality of Paul's relationship with Christ and his qualifications to lead the church, they now needed the tables turned on them. They needed to examine the authenticity of their own salvation. That each one needed to genuinely test the reality of regeneration of a new heart. This is the most important question. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. He turns the tables on them and he says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? That's the most important question. But how do you do that? What is the test that Paul is speaking of? Well, first, let me give you some classic tests that I would characterize as false tests. They're illegitimate ways to test your own faith in Christ or, for that matter, to accurately assess the reality of the salvation of another who professes Christ. These are false tests. You know why they're false tests? Because they always test positive every time, every single time. So they're false tests. A true test may test negative. A false test always tests positive. So let me give you seven false tests of the genuineness of faith, of actual regeneration of being in Christ. And this is just kind of our starting point. But seven false tests. The first one is an emotional experience. 
and the emotional experience you had in the past. I, I was raised in an Armenian household where you got saved 10,000 times before the age of 11. That was just the way it worked. Armenian in all caps. I spent my whole childhood terrified of losing my salvation, which isn't even possible now that I know the word of God. But you know what I hung all my hopes on all the time? It was whatever experiences I might have at, at church camp or in the church service or, or with uh, somebody who's praying with me that I had some sort of emotional experience. And I learned from a very, very small uh, age, young age, to look for it and to find it because that emotional experience gave me assurance. It's false assurance. You can feel the same emotion at a baseball game when your team is winning. That has nothing to do with assurance. Emotion isn't a gauge of regeneration. Here's another false test. Finding God in a crisis moment. Finding God in a crisis moment. Now, you may have found Christ in a crisis moment, but that doesn't prove your salvation. That only proves that at some crisis point in your life, you sensed a vague need for God that was either from the Lord or not. But salvation is never proven by the circumstances themselves. This is an example. One Hollywood star last year proclaimed that he was suicidal, but becoming Catholic saved him from suicide. Now, clearly, he did not embrace the biblical gospel, yet he believes he has found God because it happened in a crisis moment. Putting confidence in salvation based on Coming out of a crisis, that's actually a false gospel. That's a false gospel that says that, that God wants to bring you out of a crisis, that that's what salvation is. That is not salvation. Salvation is about rescuing you from the wrath of God, not, a, not from rescuing you from some terrible circumstance in your life. Here's a third false test. Attending a church that preaches the gospel Attending a church that preaches the gospel. This is the Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 problem of the person who's been around other genuine believers for a long time and therefore believes himself to be part of that group. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says that this is the person who's been enlightened, has tasted the word of God, that there's been a, a, a taste and I like the taste. When the culture of the church is believing the gospel, when the culture of the church is following Christ, obeying the commands of Christ, a person can hide in that, being self-deceived. I'm so glad I'm around all of these people. They're, they're really holding me up. They're holding me accountable. But that's not regeneration. Here's a fourth false test. The affirmation that others give. The affirmation that others give. Just because other people use the same false tests on your behalf doesn't make your salvation genuine. Just because somebody says, oh, of course you're a Christian. Of course you're a Christian. I was at your baptism. I, I heard your testimony. Remember how emotional you were when you accepted Jesus into your heart, whatever that means. Remember how God got you out of that crisis? Listen, no human being can give assurance of salvation to another Paul didn't say, test one another. He said, test yourselves. Look to the Lord. Here's a fifth false test. A momentary agreement with the gospel. A momentary agreement with the gospel. You know, this happens at the deathbed of people all the time. A well-meaning family member, or even more unfortunately, a well-meaning pastor 
is trying to provide assurance to everyone in the family, everyone else, that the dying person is in fact a Christian, even if that person has never lived a Christ-following life. There's never been any fruit. And so they play 20 questions with the one who's about to face God. Do you believe in Jesus? Uh Uh-huh. Do you believe he died to save you from your sins? Uh Uh-huh. Have you asked Jesus into your heart? Yeah. And you turn and say, yeah, he's saved. Everybody, he's saved. So we can mark that off the list. You have no idea that is not an accurate test. Here's a sixth false test. Your own declaration about yourself or others. Your own declaration about yourself or others. Saying the words, I'm a Christian, only proves you know how to say the words, I'm a Christian. Saying the words, he's a Christian, that doesn't prove anything either. I would encourage all of us to beware of believing ourselves more compassionate than God in saying, well, I, I, I just can't believe that he isn't actually a Christian. I mean, and then you insert your own false test in there. There's a seventh false test, the one that is most likely to trip you up, and that is personal affection for someone. Personal affection for someone. You can have great, great personal affection for an unbeliever. Years ago, I worked alongside an atheist, and I loved him. He was, he was a wonderful man. We had a great time together, and we worked with children together, and I would ask him, what happens when you die? And he would say, you just go into nothingness, and you never know anything. And i say, well, why are you trying to help these kids? Because that's all that's going to happen to them anyway. And we had wonderful conversations, and his name was Wayne, and I loved him. And I cherished our time together, and I shared the gospel with him over and over again. And at times he would say, you know, I, I'm beginning to think that maybe there's a God. But my affection for Wayne has nothing to do with whether he's saved or not. What kind of logic is this? I care about this person and have a close relationship with him. He, therefore, must be a Christian. Do you realize that that's the height of arrogance? To say that since I'm close to someone, they must be saved. In Jude, verse 4, Jude describes the false believers as people who have crept in unnoticed. They're nice. They're kind. They might even slide under a membership process and they might even be serving in the church. They might bring a meal to your house. They might be wonderful people. Consider the case of Demas. In the book of Philemon, Paul called Demas my fellow worker. And he sent warm greetings from Demas to the church at Colossae. There was a a warm relationship between Paul and Demas. Fast forward to the end of Paul's life and his ministry. In 2 Timothy 4.10, Paul reports that Demas, quote, is in love with this present world and had deserted Paul. He had deserted the faith. Paul was close to this man. I mean, can you imagine If I want to be close to anybody to give myself assurance of salvation, I think Paul would be at the top of my list. But Demas deserted him. Personal affection for someone has nothing to do with their salvation status. It just makes it hurt worse when you see that they may not be in Christ. So on the other hand, then, what are some true tests of salvation? As you look in the mirror of your own life, what do you look to see? What do you hope to see? Let me give you a short list. It's not comprehensive at all. We could probably do this for six months, but I just want to give you a short list of tests of a true believer. 
tests of a true believer, and I've, I've narrowed it down to six of them. We're going to go fairly quickly through five, and then we're going to hammer one deeply into our hearts. The first test of a true believer we'll call concern for obedience. Concern for obedience. This is the, the believer who has a, a constant yearning to grow in salvation, not just to go to Bible studies or to listen to countless sermons, but to actually see heart change and listen carefully to confront himself about his own sin. Instead of worrying about everybody else, there is this constant yearning of looking inward. It is a person who experiences a pricking of the conscience that when you step out of line, when you step into sin against the Lord and against others, there's a sensitivity to this. There's a, a, an acknowledgement. And it doesn't have to be a bunch of people telling you. You have a sensitivity to it. I've seen this in our own church. I, I have seen between others and even, even some graciously coming to me and saying, you know, uh, three years ago I had two seconds of a negative thought about you and I, I would like to repent of that right now. That's sensitivity. A concern. Jesus was very black and white about this. In Matthew seven seventeen. he said, Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. And Paul explained that the one who has been regenerated, who has been given a new heart, a new, is a new creation in Christ, will in fact demonstrate a changed life. This is a key component of the gospel. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul said it this way to the Colossian believers. He said he was praying for them continually, Colossians 1.10, So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God. This is, a, this is a tree that just has fruit all over it. You're not searching for one little tiny shriveled up piece of fruit. It's everywhere. That is the norm for a believer, a concern for obedience. Now, obviously, this concern for obedience doesn't imply sinless perfection, what it does imply is a continual yearning for Christ-likeness. And by the way, that's the basic meaning of what it means when somebody says, I want to grow in the Lord. What do, they, what do they mean by that? They mean, I want to become more obedient. I want to receive the knowledge of God from his word, resulting in more Christ-likeness. That's what growing in the Lord is. It is not just the acquisition of knowledge. It is the acquisition of knowledge which turns into obedience. Now think of Jesus' exhortation in Luke 17, 3 and 4, he said, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Now, clearly, Jesus is giving this example from the vantage point of the person who's been offended. But what about the other guy? You ever think about him? What about the person who's so spiritually weakened so spiritually downtrodden that he offends one brother seven times in one day, repents seven times in one day with a genuine heart to turn away from that sin. He's not doing it very well, but he has a genuine heart. 
And certainly that guy's not experiencing much spiritual victory in his life, but at least he's not digging in his heels pridefully. At least he's not denying sin or blame shifting or denying responsibility. He's not blaming anyone else. I'd rather have a church filled with guys like that than one who digs his heels in. The one who says, I repent seven times. How humble do you have to be to go back seven times. Hey, um, you remember that conversation we had at 7 a.m., 10 a.m., 11.30, 12? And uh, uh, you're not going to believe this, but, you know, I, I did it again. How humble do you have to be? What kind of courage does that take? That's a concern for obedience. And this concern for obedience is not a hindrance to us. It's not a weight. It's a help. It's a, it's a joy to us. Listen to the Apostle John in 1 John 5, 3. He says, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. It means that they're not heavy. What does that mean? It means that light is the heart of the believer who has a concern to obey Christ. There's a lightness of heart to that. That's the focus of your life. Heavy is the heart of the one who blames others, makes excuses, self-justifies. That's exhausting to do that. It's exhausting. Let me give you a second test of authentic faith. Desire for God. Desire for God. And you might say, that, that seems fairly rudimentary. It's pretty basic. But desire for God is only possible for a genuine believer in Christ who has been sought out by God himself. How do we know this? Well, Romans 3.11 says, with abundant clarity, there is none who seek for God. Only somebody who's been regenerated by the Spirit of God can seek after God, who has a desire for God. Only the regenerate person is now empowered by the Holy Spirit to have this genuine yearning for the Lord, to be like the psalmist in Psalm 42, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, you might say, but isn't the person who comes to church all the time, aren't they showing a desire for God? Well, maybe at some unregenerate level, but it's not desire from the Holy Spirit, which resulted, it results in genuine repentance. I've been the pastor long enough now, and I, I'm looking around the corner here soon at 30 years of ministry. I've been doing this long enough to see those who live a pseudo-Christian life in a desperate attempt to understand faith in Christ as a set of rules to live by. That the person says, okay, everybody here in this church, they're, they're talking about husbands loving your wives. They're talking about wives submitting to their husbands. They're talking about giving regularly to the church and, and reading the Bible and, and praying and going to events of the church. Okay, I'm going to do all those things because that's what Christians do. And since I had that emotional experience a couple of years ago and, and I had a crisis and it seemed like the Lord saved me, I'm a Christian now. Do you know this is exactly how the Apostle Paul described himself prior to his salvation? Prior to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, he described himself as someone who yearned, who longed to keep all the rules, but there was no internal reality of faith, no drive to desire God himself. Paul said in Romans 7 in describing himself prior to regeneration that he was, quote, a captive to the law of sin, which is in my members. What what does he mean by that? He meant 
that he knew the law, he knew the Old Testament law, he, he could recite it chapter and verse, and yet he couldn't keep it. And he tried to categorize it in his mind, tried to say, well, if I do all these things, and then all these things, and he would come up to this moment of frustration where he couldn't do it. And you only have two choices when you reach that moment. You either repent and come to faith, genuine faith where you desire God, or you convince yourself of your self-righteousness that I am actually keeping the law. I am keeping all these rules. And when you do that, then you start pointing at everyone else who isn't keeping all the rules. And you literally become self-righteous in yourself. Why do you think the Apostle Paul had to be knocked down to the ground and blinded? He had to be humbled to the dirt, quite literally. Now, to be certain, we are under the law of Christ, but... Just an intellectual understanding of a bunch of biblical concepts and an attempt even to set up your life according to Christian standards and principles that ultimately will lead to pride and leads to self-righteousness instead of desire for God. In contrast, the regenerate person has a longing. You have a yearning for the things of God. Like the, the men on the road to Emmaus when the Lord Jesus was explaining from the Old Testament all the things concerning himself and later they said, weren't our hearts on fire in us? We yearn to know these things. We yearn to know this man. We yearn to know God. We yearn to be thrilled by the truths of God. In a culture where commercials that are longer than six seconds now lose our attention, why do you sit here two hours on a Sunday and just listen to a guy talk? Because you yearn to know God. That's why. The Spirit of God in you gives you that desire. And by the way, that desire will be with you for all of eternity. For the rest of your immortal, eternal existence, you will desire God. You will fully know that as Psalm 16 ends, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. And this is the mind-boggling thought that we've mentioned before. Since God is eternal and there is no end to what you can know, when you have known him for a 100,000 years, you will not have made progress. I, we can't wrap our minds around that. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Okay, you've been in the final state here for the first trillion years. Let me show you something new today. How do you even comprehend that? But the true believer has a yearning for that, a desire for that, a, a longing for God. Here's a third test. And I know you know this one was coming. The pursuit of humility. The pursuit of humility. Humility is a defining feature of a genuine believer in Christ. Humility is the very first definition in Ephesians 4 that Paul gives of what it means to walk worthy of the calling of Christ. Paul defines humility in Philippians 2, 3, and 4 as regarding others as more important than yourselves, as looking out for the interests of others. The opposite of humility, pride, works itself out in other selfishness, a, a lack of desire to consider others, to think about how your actions might affect others. In fact, our help in sanctifying one another is entirely based in humility. That's part of our, our, our role, our duty as the body of Christ is to sanctify one another, to lead each other to Christ-likeness, and that takes humility. Jesus gave us instruction to help one another with sin, not to nitpick every preference issue, but with observable sin. 
He said in Matthew 18, 15, Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. What's the key phrase? What's the game changer? If he listens to you. What happens if he doesn't? If he refuses to listen or listens with conditions or a a fighting, pugnacious spirit, if it continues, ultimately that person is behaving like an unbeliever. And Jesus said just a few verses later that he's to be treated as an unbeliever, not as one with whom you have sweet Christian fellowship. You can't have sweet Christian fellowship with somebody who professes Christ on one hand and is consumed by pride on the other. Fellowship is based in being crushed at the foot of the cross together, right? What's the root of humility? What's the source of this meekness? Where does it come from? Ultimately, humility is rooted in a keen awareness of the holiness of God. It's rooted in an awareness of the absolute purity, the absolute majesty, the absolute separateness, the otherness of God. I think at times some may be tempted to think themselves more compassionate than God. If you are tempted in that way to think yourselves more compassionate, consider the outworkings in Scripture of the violations of the holiness of God. Consider that when Achan took things he wasn't supposed to in the conquest of Jericho, God ordered Achan and his family and everything Achan owned to be destroyed in Joshua 7. Consider Korah and his followers who rebelled against Moses being buried alive by God himself and the 250 men who rebelled with them being burned alive, burned to death by God himself. Consider the fatal fiery serpents God sent among the complaining Israelites when they complained about God's provision. Oh, we don't have enough of this and being, being bitten and poisoned and dying. Consider the 3,000 executed when Israel worshipped the golden calf. Now, if you've spent most of your life in the typical American evangelical church, you might say, okay, well, I understand that. But that's the, that's the God of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God is much more chill. He's just really laid back, much more loving. Okay, consider Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead in front of the church. They didn't die in their beds. They died in front of everyone. Consider... Believers in Corinth refusing to demonstrate the same grace that God had demonstrated to them, getting sick and dropping dead in 1 Corinthians 11. Consider the warning of James chapter 5 that an illness may be because of unrepentance and that only by repenting and calling the elders of the church to pray ostensibly for a disciplined person who's now being punished by the Lord, that that person would be healed. Consider 1 John 5.16 that there is a sin that leads to death. Now, there's a bit of a debate there. John may be talking about the sin of a false Christian who rejects the gospel at such a level that eventually they won't be brought to genuine repentance. Hebrews 6.6 talks about that person. Or John may be talking about the Christian who is in such rebellion that the chastisement of God leads all the way to death. doesn't matter which one you take. In either case, the holiness of God has been violated and somebody died. Maybe the most misunderstood instance of God's fatal chastisement is in the Old Testament, and I think it seems to bother us. Some have even expressed anger at this. 
listen as I read a familiar story from 2 Samuel 6. Then David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of Yahweh of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they drove the ark of God on a new cart, that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ohio was walking ahead of the ark. Now David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before Yahweh with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. So you have this parade going on. Then they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, and Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of Yahweh burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. This is hard for us to swallow. I mean, look, the thing's going to fall over. He just reached out to make sure it was okay. It's really hard to read that and wonder why God would strike Uzzah, who just seemed to be being helpful. But let's look at the facts. Fact number one, God prohibited touching the holy things of the tabernacle. He prohibited it. The ark was constructed with rings so that it could be carried by poles and not be touched by sinful men. Exodus 25 gave this uh, outline. Number seven, verse nine, tells us that one specific family, the sons of Kohath, were given the task of carrying the holy things with the poles on the shoulder, never touching them. Numbers 4 verse 15 says, When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. It's the second fact. Uzzah did not die on a technicality. He didn't die on a technicality. This is not characterized by the text or by God as some sort of innocent mistake. Verse 7 says that God struck him because of his irreverence. It's a word that means hastiness, impudence. It can even mean blasphemy. Now, there's a simple way to think about this. If God is always just, and God is always just, then Yuza deserved to die. Here's a third fact. The ark was not being carried according to the law. They put the ark of the holy creator God on a cart pulled by cows. And the text even says, oh, but it was a brand new cart. That's self-styled worship. God didn't say carry it on a brand new cart. He said it shouldn't even be on a cart at all. It was pulled by Betsy and by Lulu. It was supposed to be carried by men who trembled before God, made in the image of God, consecrated, made holy and sanctified unto one purpose. Men who would tremble before a holy God before picking up that pole and with trembling hands very, 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 very carefully slide the pole into the rings, never touching with great prayer and great concentration and nobody talking to them, nobody letting them focus on anything else except this task and lifting that ark with great, great, tremendous fear. 
And there's a fourth fact. Yuza had pride in his heart concerning himself. And you say, all right, you've gone too far here. Where do you see that? Well, let me walk you through it. Yuza instinctively believed something. And when pressed in a moment of crisis, you will always act on what you believe. You will always do what you believe. You ever walk around the corner with someone that you care about and the minute that they see you, their face lights up? What does that tell you? It tells you that they believe good things about you. Ever walk around the corner and you catch somebody making a scowl and then putting the fake smile on? That just revealed their heart. Yuza revealed his heart. Yuza believed that he was cleaner before God than the ground upon which the ark was maybe going to fall. That it was better for the ark to touch his hand than to touch the dirt. Now, why is that arrogant? Why is that prideful? Here's the spiritual reality. The creation, the dirt, is currently the victim of the sin of mankind. Romans 8.20 says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. The fall of mankind in the sin brought God's curse on all the creation. And put it this way, the dirt may be uh, dirty, but it wasn't its fault. It's your fault. In reality, in this way, dirt is spiritually cleaner than humanity. See, Yuza didn't die because he was innocently trying to help. He died because his heart was utterly filled with pride. And given the instant opportunity to show humility, he thought himself clean before God when he was not. And of course, the question is, what should Yuza have done? Well, don't touch it. That's the first thing. What he should have done is thrown himself to the ground and begged for God's mercy. Humility. He had an opportunity and he blew it because his view of God was too low and his view of self was too high. Here's a fourth test. We'll call this one mission for the lost. Mission for the lost. The genuine believer in Christ doesn't really need to be taught to have a concern for those who don't know Christ. And in fact, the new believer I have found is often most concerned because they have the most recent memory of the experience of being lost, being out of the family of God, being at odds with God as his enemy. There's that recent memory. I want to point out some believers. They're all young believers in two different churches and just make an observation about them. First of all, the believers in Philippi, when Paul wrote to them, in the letter to the Philippians, none of them had been in the faith more than maybe 10, 12 years. It's fairly new in the Lord. I've been walking with the Lord nearly five decades, so 10, 12 years is nothing. But Paul commends them. Philippians 1, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Fellowship in the gospel is not a phrase that means, yay, we're all saved. It means our work, our labor, our toil together for the sake of the lost. And I'd point out the believers in Thessalonica. None of them had been in the faith more than a couple of years. When the Apostle Paul wrote to them, and he wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, 
not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. And Paul goes on to say that basically every time he got to a new city to evangelize, he would say, I'd like to share with you about the Messiah. His name is Jesus. And people would say, oh, we've already heard of Jesus because people from Thessalonica got here before you. Now, this is all I want to point out. There's no evidence of Paul laboring to create a concern, to, to build up a mission for the lost. Paul only visited Philippi twice, as recorded in the book of Acts. There's a potential implied third visit and a long shot fourth. Just visits. He was only at Thessalonica for maybe at the outside 12 weeks total before being driven out of town. So, if Paul didn't set up a three-year class on missions or a degree program in evangelism or a master's degree in missiology, why were these new believers so concerned for the lost? Because that's the mark of a genuine believer. It's built into you. Here's the logic. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells the true believer in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who blows, as Jesus said, to regenerate the lost. Why then would we not think it so obvious that the Holy Spirit in you creates that desire for the Spirit to regenerate others? It's obvious. And in my experience as a shepherd in dealing with those who persist in rebellious, selfish, self-harming, other-harming sins, one common feature I've noticed, which is almost always, if not always present, is a lack of concern for how rebellious, sinful behavior negatively impacts the mission of the whole church, negatively impacts the impact of the gospel on the community, negatively impacts how good we are at being faithful. There's no care for that. For the true believer, the discipline for harming the gospel cause may be painful, even unto death. And for the false believer, then the selfish, willful sin which harms the church is completely consistent with his true character. In either case, for the true believer, mission for the lost is part of who you are. You're built that way. Here's a fifth test. We'll call this one longing for the heavenly. Longing for the heavenly. We're familiar with Paul's exhortation to the Colossian church in Colossians 3. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is manifested, then you also will be manifested with him in glory the Apostle John gave a similar truth in this fashion, 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 Peter 2.11, Peter calls us sojourners and exiles. Older English translations call us strangers and aliens. That We don't belong. The Apostle Paul expressed his longing for heaven to the church at Philippi. He said in Philippians 1, 21, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know what I will choose. 
but I am hard pressed between the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. And yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. This is the mark of a genuine believer. A a willingness, in fact, a yearning to let go of the things of the world. An eternal perspective which doesn't demand I get everything that I want now, that understands that vindication for injustice will come later. It doesn't have to come now. A look beyond this life, and if I could put it this way, a growing delight as eternity grows nearer. The false believer can't really relate to that at all. And if they have any sort of assurance of salvation, it's a false assurance, assurance based on fooling themselves with their spiritual resume, just like the arrogant false believers we read about in Matthew 7 who dared to give their credentials to Christ, who dared to say, well, here are the wonderful things I've done. You know what Romans 3 says of them? That every mouth will be closed, that no excuse will be Listen to, oh, well, you're right. You know, you were in church for 45 years straight, so let's give them an exception. No, how dare anyone give their credentials to God? I've given you five tests. Concern for obedience, desire for God, pursuit of humility, mission for the lost, longing for the heavenly. I'd like to spend a little bit of time on one more. In my study of the New Testament, this one is so heavily emphasized, I wanted to save it for last. And if you know your Bible, you're already guessing. The sixth test is love for the church. It's love for the church. And I don't mean love for the idea of the church. I don't mean love for the institution of the church. I don't mean idea of loving a particular flavor of local church because it suits your preferences. Even unbelievers can claim to love a church if if the church has done something kind for them or someone in the church has been nice to them. An unbeliever can say, oh, I I love that. I I ran into a guy here in Bakersfield once who said, oh, yeah, I I love Grace Bible Church. Really, I've never seen you there. Because somebody in the church was kind to him. I love your church. I'm talking about love for the individual believers in the local church, in a specific local body, and more broadly, beyond the walls of the local church. I'm talking about the soft and tender and pliable heart which yearns to obey Romans 12, 15 to as as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all. I'm talking about the heart that works at thinking and believing the best. Wouldn't you love it if you knew that every believer at Grace Bible Church always thought only the best of you, even in private? That's what we yearn for, and that's what the true believer desires to do. The world has a word for how to manage relationships. Books have been written on this, classes taught, entire degree programs And that word is boundaries. Boundaries. And to be certain, you must have some order in your life. Your cell phone needs to go off at certain times. It needs to, you need to have certain types of order in your life. But in the world's estimation, the world's definition of boundaries, this is how you establish yourself as dominant over another person. Cutting off relationships with no hope or pathway to restoration. Emotionally punishing those who don't please you. Setting yourself up as judge of others and to make certain that you keep them out of your life if they don't do what you want. That's not the true believer. The true believer longs for closeness, longs for unity, longs for this this togetherness. And, And it's not always possible because ultimately it takes two. But Romans 12 says, be at peace if at all possible. That's the longing. 
to finish our time this morning and to prove to you the weight that Scripture gives that the genuine believer loves the church, we have to go to the obvious place. Turn with me to 1 John 2, and we're just going to do a quick little hop and skip here through a few verses. 1 John 2, to emphasize the substance of just how important this is as a test, we're just going to look at a few of John's declarations. 1 John 2, verse 10 1 John 2.10, the one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness blinded his eyes. There's no lack of clarity here with John. He's the most black and white and least nuanced of all the New Testament writers in my opinion. The love of the fellow believer in Christ gives assurance of salvation. He abides in the light. And it takes away fear of being the false believer. There's no cause for stumbling, no cause for doubt. But notice, on the other hand, the one who hates his brother is characterized by total spiritual deception, total blindness. This is where the spiritual danger comes in. Those I've spoken to that literally express hatred toward other believers, a lack of willingness to try any sort of reconciliation, even when the other party is willing, they don't see how spiritually blind they are. They dig their heels in. How about 1 John 3, verse 10? 1 John 3, 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Everyone who does not do righteousness is not of God, as well as the one who does not love his brother. Again, the black and white judgment of John, you love the church, you're a child of God. You're fine with harboring hatred and distance and disunity and dislike and pushing people away, you're a child of the devil. There's no in between here. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love abides in death. Passed out of death into life. This is a huge phrase theologically. This is a phrase that has implications for both regeneration and justification. Regeneration, the work of the Spirit to open your eyes to the gospel. Jesus characterized it in John 3 as the, the blowing of the Holy Spirit upon the lost person to melt their heart, to opening their mind to believe the gospel. It's the enlivening of the spiritually dead person to spiritual life. And justification is the judicial act of God to declare you innocent in the courts of heaven, to declare you that you are now viewed as if you have the righteousness of Christ himself. So having passed out of death into life means you've been regenerated, given a new heart, and been born again, and justified. You have a new standing, new heart, new standing. But the one who does not love the brethren abides in death. No regeneration, no justification. Two verses later, verse 16. By this we have known love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So love isn't just words. Oh yeah, I love the church. Love isn't just a a general statement. Sure, I love certain people in the church. No, this is love which is sacrificial. Love because of Christ's work of sacrifice for you, that you have a heart of sacrifice towards your brothers and sisters. And how does that work itself out? You know, Romans 12 tells us one way it works itself out, that if someone is treating you as if you were their enemy, you're to pour hot coals on their head by treating them like a friend. That's how it works itself out. It's sacrificial. 
The very next verse, verse 17, whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? You close your heart against a brother who has a genuine need that pronounces judgment on your own soul. The very next verse, verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so notice here, words don't equal love. Words can be faked. Words can be written. Words can be crafted. But deeds is what shows true love, and it shows it in truth, meaning that the deeds reveal that your love is real. Verse 23, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he gave a commandment to us. This isn't passive emotional love that comes and goes. This ties your salvation status directly to how you treat the body of Christ. Jesus said, if you love him, if you belong to him, then you obey his commandments. This is motivation to love the church, to love each other based on your love for the Lord. Well, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church that much. That's not possible. That person doesn't exist as a believer. And when the professing believer is urged and exhorted and confronted and compelled by fellow believers, many of them, to demonstrate love, to demonstrate kindness, to demonstrate tenderness, to demonstrate humility, and refuses to do so, that person condemns himself. Because a stubborn refusal to love the brothers and sisters is a stubborn refusal to obey Christ. But the Spirit of God in the genuine believer causes a yearning to obey. We have a natural desire. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Here's our natural desire. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And once again, we see this connection to regeneration, to being born again, that if you're born of God, then you love all the others who are born of God as well. I'm not going to belabor the point. John keeps going and going. Verse 12, no one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. Verses 16 and 17, we have come to know and believe the love which God has in us. God is love and the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this, love has been perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Verse 20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Chapter 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the one who gives new birth loves also the one who has been born of him. If you say, I've been born again, then you, by default, love everyone else who has been born again. That's the ultimate test. This is a difficult message to preach. Because the one who truly needs to hear it is likely deceived, spiritually blinded, arrogant, and perhaps even angry. And I said this at the beginning and I'll say it again now. If you sense anger or pride or stubbornness welling up in your heart and you don't respond to the Lord's urging to test yourselves and examine yourselves to see if you were in the faith, it's entirely possible that when you are before Christ, when you are saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I go to church? Didn't I do the religious things? Didn't I go to Grace Bible Church? It's entirely possible that this very day, in July of 2023, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge, will say, yes, you were in church and you were warned. This is a difficult message, but it's a healthy one. It's a necessary warning. It's good for all of us to remember. And my prayer for this church is that all of us, all of us may be found before the throne of God, the throne of our Savior, that all may be found in the faith. And so we would join in the prayer of Jude, who said, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray together. You bow your heads with me. Our Father, I I thank you that it is not my responsibility as the preacher to know the hearts of men and women. It is not my responsibility as the shepherd to discern the inner goings-on of a person's mind and heart. That is exclusively your domain. But Lord, to the best of our ability, the truth has been proclaimed this day. To the best of our ability, we have warned at as high a level as, as I know how to do. We have read as many scriptures as we could fit into an hour or so. Lord, the the difficulty and the pain that our church has been through in in the past weeks, it weighs on us. It hurts. And at the same time, we are brought to a place of humility, a place of fear, a place of trembling that we might all test ourselves and examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Oh, Lord, I pray that every person hearing this will someday stand before the throne and instead of hearing the words, depart from me, I never knew you, that they will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and receive your reward. That's my prayer for each person hearing this, Lord. I pray for a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, that even now the Spirit of God is showing them that they have been false. I pray, Lord, that they would humble themselves and in just a few moments of humility before God change the course of their eternal destiny. Lord, we pray for every child in this church. They're all born prideful. They're all born thinking themselves the center of the world. Break their pride down. We humbly ask you to save every child. We humbly ask you, Lord, to help us to discern those in our midst that are false, to confront them with the gospel, and if necessary, to purify the church as often as is necessary, as often as you would call us to do so. Because the church does not belong to us. It belongs to Christ. It belongs to our Savior. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.